Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Megan Cox Gurdon, author and weekly columnist for the Wall Street Journal. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the King's College-sponsored CLT is coming up on February 27th. College for college's sake doesn't work anymore. A college education should mean more than a green lawn and framed diploma. It should prepare you to be good, brave, and ready. At the King's College in New York City, it does. At King's, you're challenged to grow through a classical core covering politics, philosophy, and economics. Professors like criminal justice reform expert Dr. Anthony Bradley, Vox film critic Alyssa Wilkinson, and Fox News contributor Brian Brenberg set the bar high. Don't just go to college, go to King's. Apply by February 22nd to receive a waiver for the CLT. Details can be found on our website, cltexam.com, and linked in the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchored, the podcast where we discuss issues at the intersection of education and culture. Today's guest is Megan Cox Gurdon. Megan Cox Gurdon is the author of the acclaimed 2019 work of nonfiction, The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. She's also a weekly columnist for the Wall Street Journal, where she writes about children's books every Saturday, and she makes frequent appearances on the Femsplainers podcast. Former foreign correspondent and a graduate of Bowdoin College, Megan has five children with her husband, the English journalist, Hugo Gurdon. She and her family divide their time between Maryland and Maine. Megan, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Megan, uh, to begin with, can you provide our listeners with a little bit of background on yourself? Uh, An interesting aspect on your career is that you made the transition from being a foreign correspondent to children's book reviewer. Uh, What led this change? Oh, well, I guess the short answer to that is I started having babies uh, and I was uh, working as a foreign correspondent living overseas. I had my first child in Japan and I traveled while I was pregnant with her. And in fact, after she was born, I kept traveling. And then we moved, my husband and I moved to London and we had our second baby there. I had actually a a sort of uh, a a moment on the road to Damascus, as it were, uh, when I was pregnant with my second child. This is, by the way, way too much detail, but I'll give it to you anyway. Um, I was in Northern Ireland uh, during what's called the marching season, when you have, you know, groups of Protestants and Catholics kind of, well, in fact, it's essentially the Protestant groups march and there's often violence. Uh, And I was on the walls of Derry or London Derry, as it's called, depending on your tribe. Uh, and things were starting to get rough. And I was about six months pregnant. I had my radio equipment out and a policeman said to me, well, you know, what are you doing here? And I suddenly thought, actually, what am I doing here? Uh, <laughs> because I had, it, I suddenly realized it wasn't just about me and my career. It was about, you know, this family I was building. Uh, so long and the short of it is I uh, retired from active foreign corresponding after my second child came, but I kept writing. I did a lot of book reviews for the Wall Street Journal and op-eds for the paper. And when the opportunity came up to write about children's books on a regular basis, 
and they offered it to me, I jumped at it. So that is essentially how it is. I, I went from reporting about the wider world to a much cozier, more domestic world. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot that goes on in the world of children's books. And uh, it's been a privilege and a delight for to be writing about them for the last 15 years. Well, I am uh, devouring uh, at home the Enchanted Hour. Uh, when I found out we were doing the uh, the interview with you, I ordered it right away. And, and I feel like it's a book you have to read aloud, of course, and my wife and I are reading it together. But uh, as a dad of five as well, thank you, thank you, thank you for your work there. Again, the book is The Enchanted Hour. If you have kiddos and you're listening to this, make sure you order your copy. Megan, you recently wrote uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Even Homer Gets Mobbed. Uh, you discuss efforts by the group uh, hashtag disrupt text to have Homer's Odyssey removed from a Massachusetts school as part of a larger effort to deny students access to the classics. Uh, we at CLT, we're, we're here trying to revitalize the classics for future generations. Can you provide a little background on this issue? What's the motivation here for schools to remove books of the Western canon from schools? So, I mean, I think what we're seeing here really is an emanation of this larger cultural revolution that's taking place when in which you know intersectionality and principles of critical theory are infiltrating and seeping into all of our institutions so this is of a piece with that i think um and what has happened is that is that these activists are taking what is a very good idea uh which is that children should have access to texts by all kinds of people uh, featuring all kinds of characters. So for instance, one of their specific interests is that you know, non-white children should see uh, representation in fiction. All of that is entirely laudable. That's reasonable. But that idea is being used as a kind of camouflage for a much darker and less pleasant idea. And that is that uh, young people, uh, first of all, are harmed if they are exposed to texts that do not uh, represent or do not reflect modern sensibilities. Um, and they're harmed, they're erased, they could be traumatized uh, and injured, uh, which is you know extraordinary language to use about literature. But also there is the implication that today's children cannot be expected to connect and should not be expected to connect with texts that have resonated uh, for millennia in some cases, as with the Odyssey, as other children have done, other people have done. Um, the implication is that somehow that they're maybe not capable of it and that there is nothing there for them. Uh, this is a very narrow and exclusionary way of looking at the great works that have, you know, that are the patrimony of all of us. You know, they don't belong to any specific person. They belong to us as humanity. Um, Shakespeare is another author who's under assault by the disrupted text people. They argue that he is no better or worse than any other playwright, no more worthy of literary merit than any other playwright, and undeserving of a place of primacy in school curricula. And, you know, this is really, I find this enraging because Shakespeare belongs to every child, right? Yes. Shakespeare is not a dead white European male to be appreciated by living white European males. Uh, if that were true, Shakespeare wouldn't be taught all over the world. You know, his his work resonates because it's human. And and this is a this is an idea that is becoming uh, not just lost uh, in a certain cohort of educators and people in the in the children's book world. It's being spitefully perpetuated. I mean, the 
the opposite of it, as it were, is being sort of spiteful, spitefully and vindictively per perpetuated. Uh, the idea that Shakespeare is not for all children. I just think that's really, uh, that's, that's wrong. It seems that one element of the current civil strife that we're seeing in society right now, uh, society has either forgotten or just refuses to acknowledge uh, that indeed we do share a common intellectual inheritance, uh, which informed America's founding. Uh, our first guest on this program was Robert P. George, and he outlined his famous friendship uh, with Cornel West, who's actually going to be on this show in just a couple of weeks. Uh, despite political disagreements, uh, they have this beautiful, sweet friendship, um, having conversations and debates on great texts together. Um, are, are we at risk at this point uh, of losing the ability for civil debate uh, because these texts are being erased from our schools? I, I do think that uh, we emphasizing points of commonality would be an exceedingly wise thing for all people who are involved in the lives of children to keep in mind. And I think that having texts in common is enormously important. I mean, there is, there is you know, I was sort of referring earlier to the, let's say the kind of transcendent feeling of connection that you can get from reading a text that not only uh, that other people around you have read, but that generations before you have read. There's that, that sort of marvelous kind of enmeshing of oneself in the culture and the, and the, and the sensibility of the past that is, of course, surrounding us. You know, I, I live right near Washington, D.C., and if you go down to the um, National Archives, you know, emblazoned on the side is a line from Shakespeare. What's past is prologue. Mm. These are important points of commonality. Uh, and but but I think that the the larger challenge for us now, really, uh, is that we have to contend and in some way short circuit the the flood of intersectionality and critical theory that is engulfing everything around us. The problem is that if you if you accept the proposition that texts can upset and harm children or young people, teenagers, by not depicting scenes from modern sensibility that that, that reflect modern sensibilities, then you concede that everything published before the twenty you know the twenty first century is problematic and and even dangerous uh, so we can't you it, it's it's difficult but one has to we have to fight this whole way of thinking um i don't know that anyone's come up with a way to do it yet which is one of the reasons why i felt that i had to start saying something about this myself um a couple of years ago i was talking with a friend about the you know the way in which woke sensibilities were invading everything and um and we talked about which hill we would choose to die on and i perhaps um, presciently said, look, it's for me, it's going to be classic books. That's the hill I will die on. Uh, and so when I saw disrupt texts getting active, I thought I got to, I just got to do this. I mean, I'm fortunate to work for a newspaper that at least for the moment is allows uh, points of view that are, will not be popular elsewhere. So, you know, each of us has to do what we can and push back. And, and may I say one more thing, you know, I think yeah. it's important for us, those of us who love and and wish to perpetuate the, that love of the classics, you know, there is a, an association, it's a bit like poetry suffers from the same affliction, and that is that people think of classic books and poetry as being somehow opaque and demanding and mm -hmm. difficult. And it is true, obviously, there are poems and there are classic texts that do require one to really man up as it were before reading them. But mostly these are art forms that are accessible and enriching and beautiful. And, and they should be loved and read, not mm. because they're some kind of cod liver oil, but because they're full of the juice of life.
Now, in your opinion, I mean, is this is this misinformed teachers? You know, it seems like some of the teachers in the disrupt text movement maybe aren't fully aware of what they're doing, uh, or is there something kind of more more powerful, deeper, more sinister at work here? And and these are just kind of the people who are carrying it out. So I think it's a my my assessment is it's a mixture of both. People can tweet anything, right? And people can tweet in any spirit. So, but but Twitter is a public a public place and. Where what people put up there is, you know, seems to stand for what they say. And, and, you know, you can go on Twitter and you can see educators describing books such as The Odyssey as trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, someone who thinks that The Odyssey is trash is, is it might just be bomb throwing. It's just being, you know, being a bit saucy. But it also suggests, uh, as you yourself imply, that there may be a lack of understanding there, a lack of uh, a breadth of appreciation, shall we say. It's also true, I think, that that there is, you know, we have a whole cohort of young people who are woke and they identify themselves very much with the woke struggle and they want to be more, as it were, more, more, more Catholic than the Pope. And mm-hmm. I, if you go to the Disrupt Texts website, you will see testimonies from young teachers who are showing how they, and I think, well, certainly in some cases you can tell that they're white teachers because they describe themselves as striving to do better and to unlearn their racism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they are offering these testimonies to show that they are really trying to, as they say, do the work. Um, and, you know, young people are inclined to um, not always act in prudence. Well, for that matter, <laughs> neither is anyone. I mean, we're none of us always inclined to act in prudence. Um, but I, th- I think that you do see a, a combination here of, of young woke teachers wanting to really be w- really wanting to be in the vanguard of this cultural revolution and really yeah. wanting to prove their bona fides. Uh, and also then a cohort of educators who um, have perhaps not had the mind altering experience of reading the literature that they are disparaging. Mm. Let's talk about the enchanted hour. Um, you know, I, I, I love, we're, we're a, a little less than halfway through right now. My wife and I are reading a lot of it out, out, out loud together. Um, and you kind of pulled me right in with, with, uh, talking about good night moon, uh, as, as a data five, I have read that more times than I can, I can count. Um, and even here at CLT, you know, as a company, uh, we have a reading culture. We actually read out loud together every morning. Uh, most recently, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' the Souls of Black Folk. We read uh, Aesop's Fables for a whole quarter, uh, I believe in just actually last quarter. Uh, we did all of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. Um, so, and what a great title as well, The Enchanted Hour. Um, what What are some of the hidden powers unlocked when reading aloud? Oh, I, well, first of all, I want to commend you for the way that you are conducting yourself. I think it's, I mean, what a perfect life to start the morning with some sort of uplifting read aloud and then to finish it by reading to your children at bedtime. I mean, you are living the dream there, my friend. (laughs) Uh, I mean, you will know from your own experience. And I think all of us who have had the joy of reading aloud, you know, some of this will seem kind of obvious, but, uh, you know, something really, something genuinely magical, can we say, happens when we read aloud because it, it, it fosters a kind of sort of a three-way connection between the text and the person you're reading to and the person that you are yourself. There's a kind of, there's a kind of merging of heart and mind and spirit uh, that, is, that is not imaginary. Um, we, we know that uh, physiologically, 
when a parent and child sit down to read together, the, the stress hormones go down and the uh, mm. feelings of well-being, those hormones, oxytocin and such that produce feelings of connection and well-being, they increase. Um, we know that when uh, parents and children, and again, it's not just a parent-child context here and not just a, let's say, uh, adult parent and child, but sometimes also an adult child and an older parent can read together. I mean, the possibilities are really very wonderful. Um, there's a kind of, uh, there's actually a sort of a um, neurological uh, alignment that takes place when we read together. Uh, when when listener and reader are participating in the story in this way, you know, their actual brain waves kind of, you know, they synchronize. Mm. Uh, so we, that's amazing. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So, so we really are that that feeling of curious, strange, as I say, almost supernatural connection. Mm. It's a real thing, and it's measurable. And and we've seen, you know, with with newborn babies, uh, with premature babies. By the way, I spent some time when I was working on the book in the the NICU, and they've tried various ways of reading to babies. Sometimes using recordings mm. of the parent's voice, because not all parents can be in the NICU. Sometimes it's uh, the nurses reading. Uh, and they've measured what happens in these tiny, tiny babies, and they become more regularized. Their bodies are eased. Their breathing becomes more regular. Their you know, their oxygenation becomes more uh, regular. It's so there's there, so there are these physical effects which are wonderful. Um, but then you know there are all sorts of other uh, marvelous effects. Uh, the uh, connection I, I I mentioned earlier this idea that when we read a text from long ago. We, 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 we enter into a kind of friendship and connection with, with the past. And this happens when we read aloud. Um, it's also, it's, I mean, for those of us who enjoy the process of reading aloud, it's one of the most satisfying ways of experiencing literature. The sound of words is different from the sight of words. And those of us who read you know, with our eyes uh, in the customary way, um, you know, we skip very quickly over the words that are written. But when you're reading aloud, you really occupy each word. You have to say the word and you have to say it, say them in order. And it doesn't make any sense if you rush through with your voice the way you do with your eyes. And in this way, you know, you get the full music of the language. Every writer knows that one of the best ways to improve your writing is to read it out loud because your ear will pick up things that your eye doesn't see. You know, I, I got a story I got to share with you real quick. So I've been out of the classroom now for eight years, but one of my favorite teacher uh, memories was I was teaching an evening high school class to some students that were checked out. They had failed day school. I think some of them came a little bit high, actually. It was, it was, th th this group wasn't doing great. Um, and I was supposed to go through this, this parched up textbook again for the second time. And after a couple of classes, I was just like, I'm not going to do this. And I, I bought them all a copy of Flannery O'Connor's short stories. And we got in a circle, it was seven or eight of us. And we read, and I had nothing in kind of my teacher training that said this would be a good idea. We got in a circle, we read out loud together. It was, I think it was the best teaching I'd ever done. It was absolutely transformative. We could do one of these stories every time we came together. And I was like, well, this actually changes students. And, and also they could see the way other kids were reacting as the story would take a, a twist uh, and whatnot. So it, how is it that this practice, it seems to really be out of the, the mainstream fray in terms of, of best practices in mainstream education right now? Yeah, I know. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a crying shame. I, I, I mean, I, you, well, you know about the education world better than I do, but I, it is really interesting. The business of schools certainly does not always look like it's about 
in flaming children with a love of <laughs> the subject material. So it's it is it is a tragedy that reading aloud is not used more widely in schools. And I think that it's possible. I mean, it's something I I try to talk about whenever I uh, you know talk in public. And here I am about to do it now. Um, there there is some research that suggests that reading aloud. And I mean, I do mention this in the book that one of the beauties about it in the classroom setting is that um, all children are experiencing the story at the same time. And mm. because it's very, you know, it's very easy for us to make sense of things that we hear, hearing and making sense of speech is the way that we all learn to speak. It's the way we all take in information for many years before we actually, you know, learn to speak fluently ourselves. And and you don't have to learn to understand speech in the way that you have to learn to read text that you know is very arduous and takes years. Um, so, when, in the classroom setting, you have the you know the failing and struggling students and the adept readers, and they're all getting a story at the same time and at the same rate. And there was a study done, I think it was not this past September, but the September before, in the UK, um, that suggests that. Uh, struggling students who receive texts that way uh, make astonishing strides mm. in their uh, reading and their comprehension and general English, you know, capacities. Essentially, what happened is that um, in a handful of schools, teachers abandoned the kind of tedious paragraph by paragraph method of teaching these struggling kids who were 12, 13 years old, so right on the cusp of adolescence. Uh, and instead of instead of doing that and kind of just giving sort of these, as it were, deracinated paragraphs. They just read to the kids for 12 weeks. You know, every English class was just reading aloud. Yeah. Children came rushing into the classroom. They were, you know, people who, had, children who had never been able to enjoy a text, had no idea what was there for them. Suddenly it was all open. Yeah, and it was achieved through reading aloud. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I think it's, it is like, it is really a kind of miracle drug and I, I hope everyone will take it. Now, before a final question for you, I'm, I'm wondering, just to go back to the Wall Street Journal article for a moment, uh, are you optimistic? How is the response to this? Are, are people waking up to this reality that these books are under attack? Oh, I for sure. Actually, it's, I found it really interesting. You know, when I wrote that piece, I mean, the usual haters did the usual hating. And I think I've been called many names online, but I don't look. I get other people to look for me. Um, <laughs> but no, what I was really struck by with this piece is how many people contacted me from out of the woodwork, as it were. I wow. mean, there were there were old work colleagues, uh, professors who tangentially know my eldest daughter, uh, the fellow who actually the the builder who built our current house who doesn't even live in anywhere around here anymore mm -hmm. i mean people just said oh thank you for writing that thank you for telling us you know we we need to know about this which is great because that actually was my hope with the piece that it would ring a kind of alarm bell in my capacity as a children's book critic over the last 15 years you know i've seen all this stuff coming in mm -hmm. uh, but it was the controversy over disrupt texts that really galvanized me and it should galvanize everyone the truth of the matter is this is just the disrupt texts people are just again they are just a token of what is happening you know they're just yeah. a sign of what is happening uh and i think one of the things we need to do is we need to advocate for the classics parents if they can need to get involved in their children's schools and you know i hate when i say that i think to myself Ugh, but do i do that i mean i have mm. done it but it's difficult. It's difficult. And, and schools don't necessarily make it easy, but we need to speak up 
these are not racist books. They're the property of every child born today, and they should not be eliminated because every child has a right to exposure to them. Well, we're, we're co-releasing this uh, podcast with the superintendent of the Catholic Archdiocese uh, of Boston, who lo- loved what you wrote and is grateful that you're you're raising awareness of this. Um, so, and, and one of the things that actually makes me really optimistic here is, you know, students, parents uh, are flooding out of public schools. And I'm not against public school, but I am against public schools that ban the classics. Um, and I think this this kind of thing is going to, you know, another reason parents are going to continue to to look to schools like those in the Archdiocese of Boston and classical charters and homeschool options uh, and elsewhere. Final question. Um, one text that maybe has been most influential to you, a question we always uh, ask our guests uh, on the Anchor podcast, uh, maybe a text that you go back to time and time again. I, okay. So, uh Actually, I, I thought really hard about this. And the truth of the matter is my 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 desert island text in this respect uh, is uh, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I just I, I was given that book uh, when I was 11. Okay. Uh, it, it was a broken old copy from a used bookstore. It didn't have a dust jacket. I knew nothing about the author. I At that stage of my life, when I was so young. I, I, I didn't think that the author was important. I thought the title of the book was important and it used to annoy me when the title of the author was larger than the title of the book. Cause I thought who <laughs> wrote it. I just care about the book. Um, and, and, and that is a book, uh, a tree grows in Brooklyn is a book that uh, just yields dividends. Every time mm. I have read it, my initial broken, you know, used book copy of it is filled with crumbs and, and, and stains from thousands of times I read it when I was a child, I'd have a snack after school and I would go back into that book. Uh, and uh yeah, so that that's that's my book. It just it it opened the world to me in a way that wow. uh, that no other text that I read in childhood did. Um, and I think, you know, there are certain scenes in that book which contain um, you know very sincerely ad- adult content. Yeah. Uh, but she wrote it in such a way that you could read it and not really know what you were reading. There's a famous scene involving. Um, products from a rubber factory that the children hang outside their window. I had no idea what was being referred to when I was 11. Uh, when I read the book again, let's say, you know, a couple times more at 16, I, oh, I, I understood what that was referring yeah, to. Yeah. And then and in this way, you know, the book it, it yielded greater and greater riches. Oh. I love that you said that in 2004, I was a new teacher in Brooklyn, New York. And it was the first time I read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And uh, I think you're the first anchored guest uh, who has has chosen that selection. Well, Megan, this has been a delight. Again, we are here with Megan Cox-Gurdon. The book is The Enchanted Hour. And the Wall Street Journal article that we're talking about today is Even Homer Gets Mobbed. Megan, thank you for the work that you're doing, uh, fighting for the classics and raising awareness around this issue. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's great to talk to a like-minded host. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.